0: Well, Jesus came to make all things new, just like the video says. That is, of course, a work in progress by the Holy Spirit ongoing in the hearts of men and women all over the earth today. And it's a work that will continue until that great day when Jesus Christ returns to set right all of the wrongs in this world. In Revelation 21, 5 Referring to that day when Jesus brings a completed work of restoration to the entire created order. He says, Behold, I am making all things new. Jesus is all about taking that which is broken, dysfunctional, worn down and in disrepair and restoring it. Restoring us to a a new state back to the way that we were intended to be from the beginning. And that's the focus of our message today as we continue our sermon series entitled The Advocate. We're going to look at Jesus, our Advocate, as the Restorer. Last week we looked at Jesus as Intercessor because that's what an Advocate does. He intercedes on behalf of the one that he's representing. So Jesus is our Advocate who intercedes for us to the Father on our behalf and in like manner it is also the job of an advocate to bring reconciliation or restoration in a given situation if you find yourself in court uh, your attorney who is your advocate in that circumstance works to bring restoration in your life to walk you through that process so that you can get back what has been lost likewise Jesus as our advocate is not only interceding on our behalf but as we are congruent with his will for our lives as we act in agreement with His will, He restores back to us what has been lost. He restores what is broken and, and dysfunctional and worn, worn down. Everything that is in disrepair. Every good thing that has been taken from us through our own consumption of sin and self. He restores that as we respond to Him and continue to follow Him. And the Apostle Paul makes this crystal clear in 2 Corinthians five seventeen through 20 He says, if anyone is in Christ... He's a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Now that word reconcile in this passage in the Greek is the word "katalasso," and it refers to restoration. So we can just as well substitute the word restoration for reconciliation here in this passage. So let's read it again and continue through verse 20. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled or restored us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation or restoration. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling or restoring the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation or restoration. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ... God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled, be restored to God. Couldn't be much clearer. Jesus, as our advocate, restores our relationship to the Father. He makes all things new. And in that process, He restores our joy, our peace, our sense of purpose, our God-given desires, our calling, our gifts, everything that we need to live a completely fulfilled life, He restores all of that back to us. And truly, it is an amazing sight to behold to witness the transformation of a destitute, broken, seemingly hopeless life into a new creation in Christ. As a a pastor, I've seen it many times. And yet it never ceases to capture my attention and utterly saturate me with a profound sense of awe. Jesus Christ's restorative work is inspiring to say the least. And the witness of it never grows old. Of course, as followers of Christ, we've experienced it, haven't we? First hand, you know what, what it's like to be resurrected restored from death to life i'm reminded of it every time my wife and i we watch these shows on hgtv you know where they take an old broken down house and they do a complete restoration job and it seems like no matter how many of those shows we watch every time they unveil the final product it's almost shocking to see how they took something so broken and worn out you know Something that hasn't been cared for or maintained for decades in some cases. And they bring it back to the condition that it was created in. They, they breathe new life into these old houses. It's a great picture of what Christ does in us as our restorer. So let's turn back to our text that we've been working through in Luke chapter 23. And we'll start in verse 26 and see what we can glean from these passages on Christ as our Restorer, Okay, Luke 23, 26. This is the moment when a group of Roman soldiers are leading Jesus to his death. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. Cyrene was a region of northern Africa with a large population of Jews. And so Simon of Cyrene was most likely a Jew who had come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And at this point, Jesus was severely incapacitated from the scourging that he'd just received at the hands of the Roman soldiers. Imagine your, your back severely lacerated to the point of exposing muscle and tendon, maybe even organs, internal organs. And then they take a 30 to 40 pound wooden cross and lay it on your back and you have to carry it. It simply became impossible. And so this Simon of Cyrene was enlisted to carry the cross for Jesus. And this is a prophetic image of the calling of every man and woman to take up your cross and follow me, which Jesus commanded his followers to do in Luke 9.23, just after foretelling his own death. Okay, let's keep reading. Verse 27. And there followed him a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and the hills cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? This is probably one of Jesus' darkest sayings in all of Scripture. The green wood represents life. Of course, ultimately, it represents Jesus himself. And the dry wood represents death. That wood that is ready to be burned because it's dry. Which is an allusion to the unrepentant nation of Israel. And he's saying here to these women who are weeping for him, Hey, look, don't cry for me. Cry for yourselves because if this is how Rome treats me, an innocent man who came to serve, how much worse is it going to be for those who are truly guilty When judgment comes on Israel. And he recalls the prophecy in Hosea ten: eight, when under the unbearable weight of judgment, the people of Israel cry out to God to be put out of their own misery. Okay? And we know that this prophecy by Jesus was partially fulfilled in AD seventy in the destruction of Jerusalem. It will be ultimately fulfilled in the tribulation of the last days, foretold in Revelation 6 and Isaiah 2. All right? Keep reading the next three verses now. And this is where the very heart of Christ as a restorer is revealed in this uh, crucifixion event. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull where they crucified him, and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This last statement in verse 34 by Jesus not only reveals a lot about him, it reveals a lot about us. First and foremost, it teaches us that no one is beyond restoration. Okay, obviously for Jesus, who's just been wrongly accused, mocked, severely beaten, tortured, and now nailed to a cross, and hung up for a slow, painful, suffocating death... For Jesus, after all of that, while still suffering, to look upon these same people who are doing all of this to Him and say, Father, forgive them, is an astounding statement about the unfathomable love that Christ has for us. And if you spend any appreciable time in your life at all, genuinely contemplating this, this startling statement by Jesus... The absolutely confounding nature of His love for you will penetrate the darkest recesses of your being. And if you let it, it will shatter the hardest barriers in your heart. I'm certain of that. Those barriers that keep us from intimacy with Christ. There simply can be no question of His shocking love for us expressed in these three words. Father, forgive them. But beyond that, his statement here reveals something about us that is almost as astonishing. What it reveals about us is the fact that no one is beyond restoration. Because Jesus wouldn't have bothered to pray for the forgiveness of those who were killing him if the restoration wasn't possible. Jesus consistently said, and he proved by his actions, that he only did the Father's will. In John 4.34, he says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. In John 5.19, he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing on his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. And here he is then, interceding for those who don't even want it who aren't asking for it. He's advocating on their behalf that they would come to a point of restoration. He wouldn't have wasted his breath if it wasn't possible because no one is beyond restoration. That's why we never give up hope for those relatives, those friends, those who we've been praying for for years that God would save them, but they don't seem any closer, right, to following Christ now than they did then. Listen, keep praying for them. Because there is hope. If there's hope for the pious, religious, evil leaders in Jerusalem. If there's hope for the Romans who are full of nothing but hatred. For the Son of God who had done nothing wrong. If there's hope for the very people who are beating and mocking and torturing and killing Jesus. Then there's hope for your husband. There's hope for your wife, your Your father, your mother, your son, your daughter, your neighbor, your co-worker, whomever you're praying for, there's hope for them as long as they're breathing. Because no one is beyond restoration. Okay, And this is not only true of those who have a relationship or have no relationship with Christ, but the same can be said for those of us who are following Christ. Because the restorative work of Jesus Christ doesn't end at the moment of conversion. Yes, he, gener- he regenerates our hearts instantly when we place our faith and trust in Him. Yes, He forgives all of our sin instantly the moment we repent and turn and follow Him, without a doubt. However, there is yet a restorative work that continues in our lives for the rest of our earthly lives. Sometimes we refer to it as... sanctification, but whatever you call it, it is the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in our lives that is steadily and gradually putting us back into the original condition that God intended for us to be in by making us more like Him. The moment we experience the salvation of Christ, we're made righteous. I want to be clear about that. That is a complete work that happens instantaneously. But that doesn't mean that the maturity the wisdom the self-control the love the understanding the patience the forbearance for all of those things that he commands for us to have it doesn't mean they're all there instantly the moment we say a prayer no no, that is a lifelong process of becoming more like christ it is a restorative work that repairs the damage done through years of living apart from christ years of sin that sear the conscience, harden our hearts, cloud our vision, and desensitize us to the voice of God. That restorative work, that corrective work, healing work is initiated the moment we submit our lives to Christ and then it continues the rest of our lives. Remember in 1 Corinthians 15.31, Paul said, I die every day. We talked about that last week. Because dying to ourselves and living for Christ is a daily choice It's an ongoing process. Colossians 3, 9, and 10. In a letter to the church, to Christians, Paul is describing all of these sins that the church members need to stop doing. Sexual sin and idolatry. He's listing all of these sins. And then he finishes up by saying, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its Creator. Notice he didn't say, you've put on the new self which has been renewed. No, he says the new self which is being renewed. Why? Because it's an ongoing process. And then Paul really lays this out succinctly in 2 Corinthians 3, 12-18. Let's read it. Paul writes, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. That is an instantaneous miracle. The veil being removed at the moment of salvation. But listen to what he says next. Verse 17, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Can you hear Paul describing the process here, post-conversion? We're being transformed transformed into the image of Christ from one degree of glory to another. This is what the discipleship process is all about. It's what our friend Dave Wallen will be speaking to us about next week. We're instantly restored back to the right relationship with God the moment we accept Christ as Lord and Savior. But the restorative process of becoming like Christ that was assaulted... The moment sin entered the world, that process continues for the rest of our natural lives and none of us is beyond it. We can't simply expect to say a prayer of repentance and commitment to Christ and then never do another thing in His service and expect our lives to be fulfilled to any degree in Him. And yet that's exactly the way some Christians live their lives. Following Christ is an active pursuit It's mimicking His every move. It's doing His bidding, His will. It's a lifelong activity that requires faith and commitment because it's not simply a static belief system. King David said, My soul follows hard after Thee. We're all somewhere on this continuum of the restorative work of Christ in our lives. And the rate at which we progress in that from one degree to another is often dependent upon our commitment to the process because it requires commitment on our part among other things and so just quickly here I want to outline some of those requirements in the process of restoration and we just mentioned the first it requires commitment we have to be committed to the process of restoration call it sanctification call it discipleship if you like but it's the process of becoming more like Christ And it requires our commitment. In Mark chapter 8 verse 34. After calling the crowd and his disciples to himself. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me. Let him deny himself and take up his cross. And follow me. To be clear, this idea of taking up your cross and following Christ. Is not a romantic notion. We wear crosses around our neck and our clothing. And that can be... A helpful remembrance of Christ's sacrifice. I'm not in any way against that. But obviously it's far more than a a fashion statement, right? The cross symbolizes death. And not only Christ's death, but our own death. Dying to ourselves. It signifies the process of following Christ. Dying to ourselves every day. And living for Him instead of for me. For ourselves. That requires tremendous commitment. And it's one of the reasons that... To be completely honest, I get concerned about what I call the evangelism-only model of church ministry. We we talked about this a little bit Wednesday night in our Bible study. When we make the Great Commission, Jesus' command to make disciples of all nations. When we make that commission about evangelism-only, we've made a grave mistake. Because making disciples is far more than simply racking up conversion statistics on Sunday morning or on a crusade. Leading someone to Christ, seeing them get saved. Evangelism is one sliver of discipleship. It's an important one, to be sure. But it is by no means a synonym for discipleship. You follow me? Evangelism and discipleship are not the same thing. Evangelism is the first step in discipleship. There can be no discipleship without evangelism. Incredibly important. But discipleship doesn't stop with evangelism. It begins with evangelism. Does that make sense? I'm concerned that the church has become so enamored with recording large numbers of conversions that we've severely neglected. The lifelong process of discipleship because that requires an almost incalculable commitment on our part a commitment of resources and time and and energy and talents and passion it means dying to ourselves every day and walking down the road of life with those who need to be discipled and with those who are discipling us there's just simply a lot of time and energy involved in discipleship it's a fact and we must be committed to it if we're going to progress in that process If you're a Christian, there should always be people in your life who you are discipling at all times. Those who aren't as far along in their walk with Christ as you. That can be your kids, uh, a neighbor, a friend. But you should always be in the process, if you're born again, of discipling someone. Likewise, you should always be accountable, every one of us, to someone who is discipling you. Someone who can help lead you along further in your own walk with Jesus Christ. We never outgrow that. That means commitment on both sides. And it leads us to the next requirement on our list. For the the restorative process in our lives. Because it not only requires commitment, but it requires others. We were not designed, nor were we ever intended by God to be alone. And yet our culture prides itself on character traits like self-reliance, self-esteem, self-confidence, self-worth. What do they all have in common? Self. They're all self-centered. Because we love our independence. The problem with that philosophy is that God created us to be dependent. Dependent on himself. centered on others it's the exact opposite of what our society teaches our focus is to be on him first others second and ourselves last and I would submit to you today that Western culture teaches the exact reverse of that take care of yourself first then those around you and then if there's anything left you can give something to God and we can believe that and we can practice that all we want but in the end it doesn't in any way alter the reality that we still need each other. We need each other to grow, to thrive. And if you want restoration in your life, you're going to have to learn to rely on others at times, other believers, without a doubt. When we bought this old building, is 80 years old. It is 80 years old. And uh, we came in and one of the first things we realized we had to do was get the pews out because there was old stained blue carpet and it needed to come out and we were going to put new carpet in. We didn't know these beautiful wood floors were underneath at the time. And Keith and I came in one evening and we unbolted all the pews and we thought, how hard can it be? So he got on one end of the pew and I got on the other end and we picked it up for a minute and sort of looked at each other and put it back down and (laughs) thought, we can do this. It's not so bad. And it wasn't for that moment But as we carried the pew down the aisle, and out the front doors, and down the steps, and around the corner, and down the steps, and through the yard, and into the shed, we realized this isn't going to happen again. We we were done. It was brutal. They're they're incredibly heavy for two people. And so as the project continued, we, we called in the Calvary And more people joined with us. And we began to see real progress and improvement and restoration occur. And many of you were a part of that. Because we had many different people with many different talents working together to bring restoration to this old building. If I had tried to do that alone, I'd still be working on it. And we wouldn't be having this service right now. If you look at the great men of God in Scripture, when was the moment for each of them that they they fell prey to the enemy. It was either when they were alone or when they isolated themselves from others, uh, other godly people and bound themselves to the ungodly. When David was leading his mighty men, he was a champion for God. When he was submitted to his leadership, King Saul, even when he was, Saul was against him, He was God's man, but the moment that David allowed his men to go out to battle without him, as soon as he decided to stay back at the palace alone, isolated, he fell into sin with Bathsheba. Solomon did great things for God. He rebuilt the temple, a crowning achievement. And yet as soon as he gave his heart to the foreign women who worshipped other gods, he began to decline, and ultimately God judged him harshly. As soon as the disciples... Scattered at Jesus' arrest and trial, they became vulnerable because they no longer stood together. Of course, we know that Peter denied Christ three times. In fact, Jesus predicted that all of his disciples would fall away. Why? Because they scattered from him and from each other. They isolated themselves. If we're to progress in Christ, we must remain in fellowship with other believers. That's why the old argument that I hear all the time uh, you've probably heard people say, well, I don't need to go to church. You know, I can just meet with God myself. And that's true. You can meet with God by yourself. And that's one portion of his command for Christians. It's only one part of the prescription in the Bible for how we are to grow in Christ. Another portion, a really big portion is to remain in fellowship with the rest of the body. Hebrews ten twenty four and 25 says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And then of course in Acts 2, starting in verse 42, this is a definitive passage for the church. We see the first iteration of the New Testament church, yet undefiled by man and it's functioning as god intended it to and all throughout the description of the church we see fellowship between the believers at the core of everything that they did it says and they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and the fellowship it's right up there with the teaching they devoted themselves to the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were what? They were together, and had all things in common, because they were together. They were selling their possessions and belongings, distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple, together, breaking bread in their homes, they were together. They received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Okay, this is an example set forth before us that we are to follow. And that means if you're seeking restoration in your life, particularly if there are areas in your life that need to see progress, if you want to move forward in your service to God, in ministry, in personal growth, It's going to require commitment on your part, and it's going to require other believers in your life. Okay? No one is beyond restoration, but we have to be in it for the long haul. And we have to be in it together. Now then, let's finish our text for today, and we'll follow up with a final point in the last few minutes about this restorative work of Christ. So Luke 23... And let's start at verse 39, where we see the interaction between Jesus and the other two men who are being crucified near him. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Much like the first half of our text, the rest of this passage tells us not only something about Jesus Christ, but it speaks directly to the nature of our own restoration in him. It demonstrates to all who look to Christ that restoration comes through faith. Alright, the criminal's request... Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom is both a plea for mercy and it's a confession of faith in Jesus Christ. And Jesus responds, today you'll be with me in paradise. There can be no restoration in our lives without faith. How many times do we see people being restored in scripture as a result of their faith? Here's just a few quotes from Jesus himself, Luke 7.50. And He said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Luke 8, 48. And He said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Matthew 9, 22. Jesus turned and seeing her said, Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. Mark 5, 34. And He said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Luke 18, 42. And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And that phrase, by the way, has made you well, is actually a single word in the original Greek. It's the word sozo, and it literally means to save. All right? And Mark ten fifty two, Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. Again, that's sozo there. Your faith has saved you. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed Jesus on the way. For restoration, salvation, for fulfillment to occur in your life, there must be faith. Paul states this clearly as well. Ephesians 2.8, he says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Romans 5.1 and 2, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Justification, peace, salvation, reconciliation, fulfillment, these are all aspects of a life that has been restored by Jesus Christ. And they're all directly tied to faith. In fact, reality and faith are inextricably and eternally linked. Sometimes we make the mistake of associating faith with mysticism, apart from reality. Hebrews 11.1 says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And since we commonly associate hope and things not seen with uncertainty... Faith is often relegated to wishful thinking, a blind leap in the dark, that if we're lucky will yield some positive results, some kind of you know, mystical shot in the dark, if you will. But, but faith in God and His Word is anything but a leap in the dark. So instead of focusing on our own human understanding of hope and things not seen in this verse, we should focus on two other aspects of the verse. The assurance... And the conviction. Okay, assurance in this verse is the Greek word hypostasis. It means that which has a foundation, that which is firm. And the word conviction in the same verse in the Greek is elikos. It means proof. So think of it this way. Faith is the firm foundation and the proof of the things that we're hoping for, even though we cannot see them. That would be more accurate. Faith is the reality that what we're hoping for, according to Christ and His Word, will come to pass. So we cannot separate faith from reality. And for the Christian, when it comes to restoration, one does not exist without the other. In fact, this entire Christian walk stops dead in its tracks if we don't have any faith. The reality of restoration for you will only come through faith that He will restore back to you everything that you've lost. You must believe that and trust in the outcome that He's promised for you, whatever that is. I was in here working one day and uh, there was a knock at the door and I went out to the front door and it was an older woman, an elderly woman, and she said... I I attended church here in this building for like 20 years. And I, I drive by, and I've seen that you've done a lot of work, and I wondered if I could come in and see how it looks. And I said, sure. And so I gave her the tour. And uh, literally, the whole time we were walking around, she was just, oh, oh my. Her mouth was open, and we we're going through. And when we sort of ended up back here, she said, I never could have imagined in all of our years here that this building could look this way this beautiful if we'd known it could look like this we may have stayed she couldn't believe the restoration that had occurred and it's interesting because her statement about the building not only speaks to faith, belief but it also speaks to vision being able to see the possibilities for your life which we're going to talk about in two weeks but it all starts with faith believing that God is who He says He is and that He will do what He said He will do. And so I'm asking you this morning, are you, are you hurting? Are you afraid? Are you broken? Are you lacking? What have you lost in your life? Are there unfulfilled promises that you've given up on? Is there any need in your life at all? As if there is, You must realize no matter how broken, no matter how much need or loss that there is, you're never beyond restoration. And the key to experiencing that restoration is placing all of your faith and trust in Christ, committing to that process, and then learning to lean on others. Christ is our advocate, He's the great restorer. And He wants to restore you today if you're in need of it. Let's pray.